morning we continue in our series called Begin Again. And I've entitled it, How Appropriate, Absolutely, How Appropriate. And I've entitled it, How to Overcome the Fear of Failure, or How to Overcome the Fear of Starting Again. Life is not for the faint of heart. It's a quote by Nikki Verd. Many of you in this room are too young to remember a gentleman by the name of Lee Iacocca. He was an American automobile executive who was president and chairman of the board of the Chrysler Corporation. Now, Iacocca was the son of an Italian immigrant. He graduated from Lehigh University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania in 1945 and received his master's degree in engineering. He was hired as an engineer by the Ford Motor Company and he quickly proved that he was better suited for sales. By 1960, he had become general manager of the Ford division and a vice president of the company. Iacocca's increasing influence at Ford was hastened by a successful promotion of the sporty yet inexpensive Mustang. Did anybody ever drive a Mustang? You have Lee Iacocca to thank in great part for that vehicle and its success. He was named president of Ford in 1970, but his brash and unorthodox manner led to his dismissal in 1978. Later that year, he was hired as president by the Chrysler Corporation, which, having accumulated a huge inventory of low-mileage cars at the time of rising fuel prices, faced bankruptcy, and he became chairman in 1979. Does anybody remember our country going through that period of downturn and the battle to bail out Chrysler Corporation, who Lee Iacocca was president of and heading at the time? He went to Congress and asked Congress for a million, excuse me, 1.5 billion dollars to bail out his company. It was hotly debated all across the country. There were some who were for it, many who were against it, but he fought and he won. And our United States government gave Lee Iacocca and the Chrysler Corporation $1.5 billion to dig out of the hole. Now, he had to agree to raise another two and a half billion to complement that, to do everything that he wanted to do, and he did it. He responded by finding new sources of credit and by trimming operations and closing plants and persuading labor unions to accept layoffs and wage cuts. He then shifted the company's emphasis to fuel efficient models and undertook an aggressive advertising campaign that included personal appearances in the television commercials. Does anybody remember the most famous of those commercials and the particular star 
who's still alive and functioning and well-known today, became the most famous Chrysler television commercial of all time. Snoop Dogg, that's right, Lee Iacocca, and Snoop Dogg, of all people. Go look it up on YouTube and watch the commercial. You'll have a good laugh. By 1981, Chrysler was showing a small profit. And three years later, it announced record profits, profits now, of over $2.4 billion. And Lee Iacocca paid the United States government back in full for everything he had borrowed. Talk about beginning again. Our text is found in the book of Second Kings. Join me there as we begin to read. Now the king of Syria was at war with Israel and he consulted his advisors who said, invade at such and such a place. But the prophet sent this message to the king of Israel. Make sure you don't pass through this place because Syria is invading there. And so the king of Israel sent a message to the place the prophet had pointed out, warning it to be on its guard. And this happened on several occasions and they avoided war and being slaughtered. This made the king of Syria upset. And so he summoned his advisors and he said to them, hey guys, which one of you is a sellout? Which one of you is sharing our war strategy with the king of Israel? And one of his advisors said, no, my master, O king, none of us are doing that. The prophet Elisha, who lives in Israel, keeps telling the king of Israel the things that you say in your bedroom. Lest you ever think that God is too distant to see or to hear. <laughs> he knows it all. Verse 13, the king ordered, go find out where he is so I can send some men to capture him. And the king was told, he is in Dothan. Now make note of that word. It becomes important as we continue. So he sent horses and chariots there along with a good-sized army and they arrived during the night and they, say it out loud, surrounded the city. Say it again, please. Surrounded the city. We're going to come back to that. It's an important point in this story. The prophet's attendant got up early in the morning and when he went outside, there was an army surrounding the city along with horses and chariots and he came back in he said to Elisha oh no my master what will we do have you ever said those words when facing a challenge when facing certain failure when facing the fact that it certainly looks like your dream is failing and is going to die. Oh no, what will we do? You might be saying that right now regarding some things in your life as you rehearse. Perhaps you've said it this week as you've looked over the circumstances of certain things in your life, your family, your relationships, your career, your finances. Oh no, what am I going to do? 
If you didn't say it, you thought it. If you didn't say it, you felt it. And we've all been there. And this certainly looked hopeless. And Elisha replied to his servant, don't be afraid, for our side outnumbers them. Say it out loud with me. Don't be afraid, for our side outnumbers them. Then Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so he can see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw that the hill was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. What do you do when your city is surrounded? I don't know about you, but if there's anything I've learned in my walk as a Christian, it's that problems are usual. (laughs) Somebody said there's two things you can absolutely count on in life, death and taxes. Well, I have a third. Now, I asked you to make note of that word Dothan. This is a city where all of this takes place and these armies come and they're gathered around the hilltops and kind of reminds me of those old westerns, you know, where the guys would be, they'd start down that, you know, that, that valley or that, what, what am I going to call it, sort of a ravine and high mountains on the side, you know, and wouldn't you sit there and say, no, no, don't do that. Don't go in there. And all of a sudden there's Indians that would pop up on the hillside. You know, I know that's not politically correct today, but in the old Westerns and they were sure to be slaughtered. And this was a similar situation here. It was hopeless. This word Dothan means two wells. Now this happens to be the very spot where Joseph, some decades earlier, was thrown into the pit by his brothers, then pulled out of the pit and sold to a band of gypsies. This is the spot. It was likely it was one of these wells, empty, that he was thrown into. Now this place, Dothan, is becoming quite a place of hopelessness quite a place of it looks like the dream is gone. A place that it looks like, where is God? Have you asked that recently? Where is God in my circumstances? Now, let's fast forward. Interestingly enough, this is the same place in Samaria where Jesus, walking one day with his 12 disciples, stops at a well because he's thirsty and hungry. His disciples continue into the city to get lunch or dinner. And a woman with a water jar on her head comes out to draw water at the well. Do you remember the conversation? She was very religious. And Jesus supernaturally reads her mail 
tells her about her life and the husbands that she has had and the individual that she's living with now who is not her husband. And then holds a conversation with her where she gets into all this religion about the hopelessness of Samaritans and the relationship with the rest of the Jewish people and how that God has vacated and so forth. And Jesus says, if you only knew who it was that's speaking to you right now, you would ask me to give you water. And I would give you water that lasts forever and never runs out. Is it possible that you and I have been camping at Dothan trying to drink from the wrong well? The well of scarcity, the well of how our dream always seems to die, it never works out. Where is God when I need him? Because there's another well it's the well that Jesus literally sat on and held a conversation and said, look, I have resources you know not of. Ask me. And I'll give you living water that springs up. This is that Dothan. I find that very interesting. You see... I think these wells represent two different kingdoms. It's interesting here that nothing changed when the servant went out and he looked and he noticed these armies of Syria that had come to take over the city and smash them. The angel armies were also there, but he couldn't see them. And yet, nothing had changed. But his report was, oh no, what will we do? All while you and I have been saying, oh no, it looks hopeless, what will we do? What we can't or haven't seen is the Lord's provision that's all around us, ready to take care of it, if we would just have our eyes opened. Both armies were there. Both powers were there. Both kingdoms were present. Nothing changed in the story. Nothing changed. When, when, when the servant first went out there and saw him, Nothing was different. All of the heaven's hosts and their chariots and the flaming fire was there. But he couldn't see it. Your perspective feeds your fear. And I don't know if I made a slide up for that or not, Jeff, and apparently I didn't so I don't think you're going to have it either. So, let me say it again. Your perspective feeds your fear. Fear is the fertilizer for the enemy, for the lies that we allow him to sow. But we fertilize it. Is that one up there? 
Well, where'd you get that, Jeff? Jeff, you should be in this story. You are a miracle worker. Fear is the fertilizer for the enemy, for the lies that we allow the enemy to tell us. In Romans chapter 4, Paul says, When everything was hopeless, Abraham believed anyway, deciding to live not on the basis of what he saw, but on the basis of what God said he would do. And so he was made the father of a multitude of peoples. God himself said to him, you're going to have a great big old family. And God gave him that promise when he was barren and his wife was barren and both of them were over 90 years old. <laughs> Hello. You're going to have a family with a bunch of kids. Your name's going to be blessed, and out of you is going to come a blessing to the whole earth. Yeah, right. What am I not seeing here? There's another kingdom. There's another kingdom at your house. There's another kingdom in your yard. There's another kingdom when you get in your car. There's another kingdom in every one of your conversations. Moms and dads, there's another kingdom that's all about your kids as you view the circumstances and see the things that you wish were different about them. There's another kingdom. As you go home today and you get your checkbook out and you're getting ready for Monday and you realize there's some bills you haven't paid, I submit to you, there's another kingdom. It might look hopeless. But the Lord's going to open our eyes today so that we can see. I don't want to go there yet, Jeff. You know, the, the goal of fear is to get you to substitute what you can see for the things that you cannot see. Remember, it's the things you can't see that are eternal. The things that you can see are subject to change. So as we go back in our text to that part that we read, oh no, what will we do? Keep in mind, God is faithful. He has an answer. There's another kingdom. There's another well. We just don't know how to drink out of it. All right, let me give you five steps to overcoming your fear of failure. Five steps to overcoming your fear of failure, or we could say beginning again, because it's a fearful thing to start over. It's a fearful thing to begin again. Number one, you've got to own your fear. What do I mean? We've got to change our perspective, and only I can choose to do that. Only I can choose to look at God's promise instead of what I can see with my natural eyes. I have to do that. You've got to own your fear. Acknowledge its existence. Don't pretend like it's not there. And pray, God, open my eyes to see what I don't see. 
I submit to you, you will never become a victim if you remain committed and engaged in growing. Number two, don't count on others to see what you see. Others won't see what you see for a variety of reasons. Keep the naysayers and the fear mongers at a distance. But keep the dreamers and the big idea people close. Here's a test. Do they try to change your dream, your vision, your call? Or do they humble themselves to come alongside you and facilitate what God's placed in your heart? We've talked about a lot of different things that God's doing with you in your lives. I want to facilitate that. I think a lot of those things could be facilitated even out of here. We have a great big old building for it. I'm excited about all the ministries that have been rising up out of this, this small little place of Dothan are amazing to me. And the Lord spoke to my heart a couple of weeks ago and he said, Jeff, get off of your apologies tour. Get off of your apology tour. You don't have anything to apologize because you represent my kingdom and I have got the circumstances. I have got the things that you don't see. So you don't need to apologize for what I've said, where I've led you, or any of the circumstances that you see. Number three, I just love this. Go walk into the room. Go. Now, you might be saying, what's that? Have you ever started into a room, opened the door and started into the room, reached for the light switch, Flipped it and it didn't come on. There was no light. Maybe the bulb had burned out. Maybe there was something with the wiring. What was your feeling right at that moment? I know for me, I'm concerned that if I take too many steps, I might trip over something because I've forgotten where a piece of furniture is. The dogs may have left one of the toys out. You know, there's just a variety of things that could be going on, but I need some light here. The Lord said, Jeff, get up, go into the room. You'll see where things are and why they are there in time when you need to see them. Just go and get into the room. I will take care of what's in there. I will show you how to walk and where to go. Don't be afraid of failure. I know it can be the scariest thing to enter a room that's not lit, but you have got to trust your core identity. There is something on the inside of you that is saying go.
that sang, proceed into that room, open that door, get in there. But because the light switch isn't working, you've stopped, walked back out, and closed the door against what you have been feeling in the depth of your heart that you know is right. Break that. Break free of that. Go. Walk into that room, even though it's dark. God will take care of the rest of it for you. A Christian author that I was reading after said, don't be afraid. It's a common command in the Bible for a reason. Christ isn't telling us to never fear. He's telling us that we don't have to stay in fear. Feel it, but leave it. Acknowledge it, but don't live in it. And as always, God sees our brokenness. He sees our human tendencies, and he offers us a better way. Fear makes us close doors. Fear makes us turn our backs. Fear makes us focus on protecting ourselves. It causes us to eye others with suspicion, and it leads us to think of our own needs. We react to problems when we let fear take a hold. Faith, on the other hand, encourages us to open up. Faith encourages us to turn uh, toward each other. Faith encourages us to be generous. It commands that we love our neighbors as ourselves. It reminds us to care for the least of these. Number four, keep perspective. The servant had lost perspective. The only thing he could see is the one kingdom with his natural eyes. He couldn't see the kingdom where God operates, which is eternal. And so the prophet said, look, don't be afraid. Lord, open his eyes. There are more that be with us than be with them. I submit to you there are more blessings, more solutions, more answers to the things you are seeking than any of the obstacles that you've been facing. There are more resources for your problem than any of the deficiencies that you've been wrestling with. And I know you might not be able to see it in the natural, but it's there. And I'm praying, Lord, <laughs> Open my eyes, open my eyes, that I can see. Many of the people that are close don't want you to be different. Many of the people in your life are actually jealous of your dream. Many people in your life will attempt to saddle your dream, put all kinds of stuff around it, and hoops you have to jump through, and limitations that aren't from him. And always keep in mind, people who are hurting hurt others. So you know it's not about starting over as much as it is about the opportunity to build something new. Today, I submit to you, your dream is valid. Your hope is real. What God promised you will come to pass. 
And right now, it might not even be so much about starting over as it is you seizing the opportunity that's before you to build something new. There's been plenty of opportunities since moving into this building for us to see only the one kingdom out of only the one well of scarcity and lack and how that promise hasn't come to pass. But I've prayed, God, open my eyes. Let me see what you see. Number five. This might be the most difficult out of the five. This fifth one. If you fail, laugh. I mean, truly, laugh. Why? Hebrews says in chapters 12 that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Imagine that. When facing certain death and his disciples having left him, one denying the very, the, at the very night where he was captured, taken captive by the Roman guard and hauled off to stand in the court of Pilate and be judged. One of his closest disciples denied, went under scrutiny and being, being asked or tested, denied that they ever knew him. Now at about that time, you'd start thinking, man, I just have nothing to live for. I have nothing that's real. I have nothing that's tangible. God's left me. The dream's dead. And I want to tell you that's a good time to laugh. Because Jesus, who for the joy set before him, even when he was being beaten, even when he knew that he was facing crucifixion, he also knew there was another kingdom that he represented. And there would be a new day. And he would live again that the dream would live again and that he could begin again and that that seed of his life going into the ground would cause millions of hundreds of millions of people to become followers of this message. I think there were times where he laughed in the midst of the trial. Instead of saying, I'm damaged, I'm broken, I have trust issues, say, I'm healing. I'm rediscovering myself. I'm starting over. Lee Iacocca, sitting with... Yeah. Lee Iacocca, sitting with a group of his leadership, when it was at its worst with Chrysler said this so what do we do are we going to sit here and do nothing you must do something anything so long as we don't just sit here if we screw up we'll start over try something try something else if we wait until we've satisfied all the uncertainties, it'll be too late. End quote. What a speech. 
Do you realize that you can't start or restart something that has never been turned off? Let me show you the power now as we bring things to a close of this approach that we've just talked about this morning. Because what you didn't see was the rest of what happened. And Jeff, I I don't know if I even put this in here and I don't think I did, but I'm going to read it to you. It picks up in verse 18. Listen to this. As they approached him, Elisha, this is the bands, the armies that had come to destroy. As they approached him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike these people with blindness. And the Lord struck them with blindness as Elisha had requested. Then Elisha said to them, this is not the right city or road. Follow me and I will lead you to the man that you're looking for. Okay, they're blind now. They don't realize that the person they've come to take to arrest is standing right there. But he prays, Lord, strike them with blindness. So all of them are blind and wandering around. And he says, hey guys, you're not even in the right place. Let me take you to the place to the man that you're looking for. So they all, I can you imagine how did they do this? Did they all just grab hands or <laughs> now watch this, follow. Verse 20, when they had entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open their eyes so they can see. And the Lord opened their eyes. And they saw that they were in the middle of Samaria. When the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, Should I strike them down, my master? And Elisha replied, Don't strike them down. You did not capture them with your sword or bow. So what gives you the right to strike them down? Old Covenant, mercy and grace in the Old Covenant, the nature of God is coming out and being seen. Perfect time, wipe them all out, come on, take vengeance. Our God is a God of vengeance. And Elisha says, no, you do not know our God if that is your spirit. Don't kill them. Look what he says to him. Give them some food and water so they can eat and drink and go back to their master. One translation says they have a party. They celebrate. They have a great time. Verse 23, watch this. So they threw a big banquet for them and they ate and they drank Then he sent them back to their master, and after that, no Syrian raided, or no Syrian raiding parties again invaded the land of Israel. Beginning again without fear, and continuing to walk in love, even when your enemies are right there, God says, I'll take care of your enemies. I'll take care of your enemies. In other words, love always 